0: spring, so it's good that we're closing out on what could be considered a, a, dark, a dark book. Uh, as the, the preacher wraps up his search for the meaning of life, he finishes by challenging the young, and that makes sense. Uh, Ecclesiastes is part of uh, what we call the Bible's wisdom literature. Uh, and wisdom literature is primarily targeted at the young that was the function of wisdom literature in ancient Israel. It was uh, how the young were taught and trained, particularly those uh, who were in the court of the king uh, and so it 's right and fitting uh, that uh, the preacher of Ecclesiastes closes out uh, his words with a focus on the on the youth. Uh, but I also want to say it's not that the young are the only ones who need wisdom. I've met wise teenagers and 20-year-olds, and I've met very foolish people in their 40s and 50s and 60s. And so a wisdom does not necessarily come with a number, uh, but it comes with knowing and walking with God. Uh, and so as we, uh, as we look again at Ecclesiastes this morning, we're going to be starting in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7. Uh, if you're using the the Bible there in the in the chair, you'll find this passage uh, on page 559. Let's give our attention to God's word. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. This is God's Word, and like Him, it's good, it's faithful, and it's true. And while the grass withers and the flowers fade, the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. And ask for his help. Father, once again, we pray that you would illumine for us verses that can be confusing. And that you would give us a heart of true wisdom. Your wisdom. Help us to see things the way you see them. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in school, I was at best uh, a slightly above average student. I was surrounded by high achievers, so that probably helped. Um, but of uh, the one area in school that I enjoyed and excelled in was uh, in literature. Uh, I loved English class, I love reading, particularly fiction uh, and what I enjoy uh, enjoyed about literature class the most were those aha moments, or those those light bulb moments, and hopefully you've experienced that in uh, some shape, form, or fashion in your education or in your life, but, you know, in literature class would be, you'd read a book, or you'd read a chapter, and you'd kind of be like, okay, I have no idea what that's about, and then you would come into class, and the teacher would start talking and discussing, and all of a sudden you'd be like, oh? that's what that's about. Now, the the text didn't change, right? The book, the story, the chapter, it, it remains the same. I'm looking at the same words on the page, but what has changed? My perspective. Uh, I've been given eyes to see what's really going on. Uh, the same thing happens uh, when you go to an art museum, at least when I go to an art museum. You may go to an art museum and Look at the things that are on the wall or the sculptures and say, "Oh, I get that." Um, but for me, right, I can I can be standing there looking at the painting and I can think that it's beautiful. But then, right, someone comes along and they stand next to me and they say, "Do you have any idea what you're looking at?" And I have to say, "No, I don't." And so then that person begins to explain what it is I'm seeing. Right? Did Did you see how she how she did the light? Did you see how she made use of, of the shades and, and darkness and color? That's what's, that's what's going on here. Again, nothing has changed about the picture. I'm looking at the same work of art, but I've been given a new perspective. And that's what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is doing now as he wraps up. He wants us to have a right perspective. In one sense, nothing has changed. Life is still vanity. It's not meaningless. That translation is incorrect. But it is short. And it can be frustrating. And when we seek to hold on to it, it eludes our grasp. That That's still true. Life is still vanity. But what he wants us to have is the right perspective on our short lives, the right view. And so, that's what he's doing as he wraps up here. He wants us to see life with new eyes. Uh, we want, he wants us to look at this short life the way our creator intends us to do it. And he does it here by means of two words. Remember and rejoice. Those are the two key words in this passage. Remember and rejoice. And so we can put those two together this way. And I think this is what the preacher is saying. Remember your creator... So that you can fully rejoice. We need to remember so that we can fully rejoice. The first message he has for us, uh, and he he says this, he says, rejoice while you're young. He starts in verse seven. He says, light is sweet to the eyes and sun is pleasant. What he's doing, right? Light, Light is a metaphor for the goodness of life. A gift to be enjoyed. And we've talked about that. What he's saying is that we ought to enjoy the life that we have. We ought to enjoy the light while we have it. Because there are days of darkness to come when we will not be able to enjoy it as fully. In fact, he tells us in chapter 12, verse 1, that years are coming when it will be harder to rejoice. So we ought to do so now. Now. And that's been a central theme of this book, enjoying life as God's good gift. So what does he add here? How does, what does, he, deep, how does he deepen our understanding? Well, as I already mentioned, the, the way he changes here is he directs that primarily to the young. Right? Look again. And we should say uh, that young uh, here is kind of a moving target. It, it doesn't have to mean between the ages of birth and 21. Because he says in verse 8, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. And so young doesn't have to mean just the youngest among us. We can still enjoy life later on. But why emphasize youth? Why challenge those who are young? Is he just being a grumpy boomer? You're going to be old one day. Better like it now. I don't think so. I don't think so. What he's saying is make the most of your life while you can. Don't waste it. Play in the sunshine today. It'll be cold and rainy tomorrow. And he tells this to us when we're young because that's when we tend to lack perspective, isn't it? We're the person sitting in the art museum, looking at the wall, having no clue what it is we're staring at. That's what it means to be young. We don't have the perspective of years. We think it's pretty. We just don't understand it. And so he wants to come alongside us and put his arm around our shoulders and say, here's what's going on. Here's how you get the most out of what you're seeing. And notice this. Enjoy life is not just an encouragement. It's actually a command. Look at verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. That's a, that's a command. That's an imperative. And he follows it with five more. Let your heart cheer you. Walk in the ways of your heart. Know that for these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation or grief from your heart. Put away pain from your body. He's not just saying, hey, it would be a good idea for you to enjoy life. He's actually saying, no, God is telling you to enjoy life. This is inspired scripture. It is a command of God that we rejoice. To not enjoy the gift of life is to actually disobey. And dishonor the God who gave it to you, have you ever looked at it that way? right We tend to see joy as kind of this peripheral psychological feeling perspective, but no, it's actually a command of God but we don't we don't put those two together when I say when I say it is it is your duty to delight, right we tend to put obedience and joy in different categories, don't we Right, those are those are two different things. But let me ask you a question: If your boss were to give you a project or assign a task to you, and you took it, but you let him know just how, how unhappy you were with taking it, and then you grumbled and complained the whole time that you did it, and then when you completed it, you kind of threw it on his desk, what would be the attitude of your boss? would he Would he view that as, "Oh good, I'm glad you obeyed." He probably wouldn't be very happy. I mean, in one sense, you could say, "Well, I, I did what you told me to do," but it he probably wouldn't be very happy with you when when a child when you when you give an instruction to a child, whether it's a parent or a teacher or a grandparent, and they right do you would you call that obedience? Is that pleasing to you as a parent or a teacher? Absolutely not. Right? The motive with which we do it is part of the obedience. And the preacher is saying here, rejoice. It is your duty to rejoice. And it's a big duty. Rejoice. Rejoice is a command. Here's what that means. It means that grumpiness is a sin. Being a grump is a sin. You are ignoring the command of God. You are choosing to look at what God has given you and say, Eh, that's a sin. It is dishonoring to God. It's not uncommon because we talk a lot about grace here uh, to get some pushback. And people will say, but what about obedience? What about obedience? And so what I like to do is ask, you tell me about your obedience. What does obedience look like? What does your obedience look like? And if it's dour and sour and pessimistic, go somewhere else. That's not the kind of obedience God calls for. Rejoice. Enjoy is a command. To be a grump is to be a sin, to be a sinner. Rejoice is a command because it reflects God's character. God is good he 's a God who delights in what He has made. He delights in us it 's who He is. Joy actually sits at the burning center of the universe it 's not just some peripheral feeling it is who god is c s Lewis writes this in the screw tape letters uh, if you 've never read the screw tape letters it 's actually a a series of letters from a senior demon to a junior demon uh, and encouraging him how to, how to lead his client or his, uh, the, the person that he's working with, how to lead him astray, how to lead him away from God. And here's what uh, the elder demon says in one of his letters about God. He says he is a hedonist at heart. He has filled the world full of pleasures. There are many things for humans to do all day long without him minding in the least. Is that how you view God? Do you see him as a a hedonist at heart? He's created a world full of pleasures to be enjoyed. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying. I would encourage you to read the book The Pleasures of God by John Piper. If you really want to reorient your perspective on the delight of God and what He delights in, read the pleasures of God. So, how do we best rejoice? How do we do that? How do we fight the sin of grumpiness? Well, first, we start small. We can learn to give thanks. It's hard to be grumpy when you feel grateful. And so, give thanks in the small things. Pursue gratitude instead of complaining. Pursue gratitude instead of complaining. And then he tells us that really the way to rejoice, to know how to rejoice, is our second point. We learn to rejoice when we remember our creator. 12.1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. How does that help us to rejoice? What does that mean to remember our creator? Well, first, focus on the word creator. We need to remember that we are the creature, that we are not the creator. In fact, as uh, one writer puts it, our problems do not stem from our failure to stay in our garden. All the evils of the world stem from taking ourselves to be The creator. That's what Adam and Eve did. They flipped it. They said, no, thank you. I'd like to be in charge. I want to be the creator. And so one way, the key way that we learn to rejoice is we have to remember where we fit. what our piece in the puzzle is. We are the creature. He is the creator. And why do we need to remember that? Well, why do you need to remember anything? Because we forget all the time. I start every morning, assuming, right, my natural default position. I am the master of the universe, and everything will go according to my plan. Right? That is how that that is how we wake. And so we need to be reminded. And we don't need to just be reminded first thing in the morning. This is, this, by the way, is why it's beneficial to have a, a time of personal worship in the morning, right? Because right off the bat, already my compass needle is bent in the wrong direction and God has to come along and say, ah, 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 ah. right, let's adjust, let's reorient, let's remember where true north is, right? So that's why I, I would encourage you, if you have time in the morning, spend some time in the word and prayer, not, not simply to check it off a list, but to reorient your perspective, to remember who your creator is. But then also, and we've kind of lost this in the, in the fast-paced, hectic schedule of uh, Western culture in the 21st century. Um, used to, there's an older practice in Christianity. It was called the daily office. And what that meant is you had set times of prayer throughout the day. Right? Uh, and so depending on who you're reading or talking about, which tradition you're looking at, there would be the first thing in the morning prayer, a mid-morning prayer. A noon prayer, an afternoon prayer, and then an evening prayer. Now, I mean, that sounds like a lot of praying. That sounds, maybe, maybe that sounds to you like a burdensome list. But I want you to think about the why. The purpose is because, again, if I start the morning that way, Lord knows I will continue throughout my day that way, right? So that, that compass needle always wants to keep bending, And so I need those constant reminders. Hey, you're not the creator. Hey, you're not the creator. Hey, you're not the creator. Right? Always reorienting my perspective. God wants us to remember so that we can rejoice. It's amazing how important, how often the word remember is spoken throughout the Bible. Think about in the Old Testament. What was the Passover? What was its what was its purpose? It was given to Israel when they were saved from their slavery in Egypt. And why did God give it to them? Why did he tell them to celebrate it every year so that they would remember? In Deuteronomy 6, you find what's called the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then what follows in those verses are instructions to Parents. To teach their children when? When they lie down and when they rise up. When they sit and when they walk. How often do we need to be reminded of who our God is? Constantly. Right? Remember. When God's people would come into the promised land, they would set up memorial pillars. Pillars of stone so that they could remember what God had done. And then when Jesus transforms the Passover feast into what we call the Lord's Supper, and he tells us to eat and to drink, what does he, what does he tell us? Do this what? In remembrance of me. We need to remember. I need to remember because I so often forget. We're going we're gonna to celebrate the Lord's Supper again next Sunday. We do it every month. Because we need to remember, not just that God is our creator, but also that he is our redeemer. And we remember that so that we can rejoice. The preacher here gives us three befores. He says, remember your creator before, verse 1, the evil days come. And evil here doesn't necessarily mean wicked evil. Uh, That's... That word evil in the Old Testament carries a wide range of meaning. Uh, it can mean bad, right? Or, you know, so in the days when you're sick, right? That could be called an evil day. Uh, so he says, before the evil days come, the bad days come, the years of distress come, Near, uh, the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. What years could he be talking about? He gives us a clue in the next few verses verse two remember your creator before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain these verses are a poetic description of old age right Uh, when you're young and you're enjoying the light you always assume right sure it's going to be raining today but it'll what did annie say the sun will come out tomorrow but the preacher says, you know, there's going to come a day when the sun doesn't come back out. When the clouds come back. When you won't be able to see the sun. You've moved from Florida to northern Scotland. And it rains more than it, the sun shines. Verse 3 says, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, the strong men are bent, the grinder cease. He's describing... A body. Uh, He's using the image of a house, but he's describing a body that's growing weaker and falling apart. The keepers of the house are the hands. And those of you who are older know that your hands can't do what they used to do. Maybe they shake now when they didn't used to. And the strong men are the legs that carry your body, but now they're bent. They don't have the strength that they used to have. Grinders. That's talking about your teeth. The grinders are few. The windows, those are the eyes. The doors, those are the ears. You can't hear, you can't see like you used to. Verse five, you're afraid of what's high, right? You know, when you're, when you're little, climbing up a, climbing up a ladder, not a big deal. But when you get older, well that can be catastrophic. Younger, younger people, right? We, well, what do we tell our kids when they trip and fall and skin up their knees? It'll be all right. Right. Brush it off. But there comes a time in, in age when tripping and falling might mean it's the last time you get up. He wants us to remember our creator before that happens. The almond tree blossoms. It turns white when your hair turns white. The grasshopper drags itself along. You think of a grasshopper, you don't usually think of it dragging. You think of it jumping, right? Energetic. Well, there's going to come a time when you're not nearly as energetic. You can't jump and run the way that you used to. And desire fails. We don't want as strongly as we used to want, whether that refers to hunger or other desires. And why? Because man is going to his eternal home. He wants us, verse 6, to remember our Creator before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken. He's talking about a lamp. Uh, The golden bowl would hold the oil so that the lamp could, uh, the the light of the lamp is life, right? And it would be suspended by a silver chain. And one day that chain is going to snap and the lamp is going to crash to the floor and what gave it light is going to dissipate. He talks about a pitcher and a wheel at a at a cistern or at a well, right? Holding that that life, holding water. And one day, the pitcher is going to break, and the wheel won't work, right? And the water will pour out. What's he is it, is he trying to be depressing? I don't think so. What he's telling us is to live the kind of life now. That you won't regret when you're older. He's giving us the perspective. He's saying look here's the picture. Those years are coming. And so live the kind of life now. That you won't regret. When you're older. What does that look like? He wants us to just live it up. Well it looks like. Living a life. That benefits other people. A life living uh, a life that loves your neighbor as yourself, a life spent making friends rather than hurting them, a life spent for the benefit of other people. What does that look like? Uh, To connect this with our current experience, uh, a number of you have asked about our our relatives living in Ukraine. Did they get out? Have they gotten out? They should leave. And so let me just share with you the perspective that I think Ecclesiastes have, and I know that the Norrises have. If a disaster were to strike Clanton, what would be your expectation of me and our family? We're not from here. We don't have support networks here, or at least not like grandparent family My extended family lives somewhere else. I hope you would expect me to stay and serve for as long as I could be useful. Because this is my home. This is our home. And when I think of our family in Ukraine, yes, they're American citizens. But that is their home. And that is where God has called them to serve and be useful. That is what a life well lived looks like. But they might die. They might. And I it would make me very sad. I want to see my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law and my nieces and nephew again. They might die. But they will not die before they really live. Can you say the same about yourself? Have you really lived? That's what the preacher wants you to do. What does it look like to really live Listen to these words from James Russell Miller. He was a pastor and author in the late 19th century. He said, Only Christ can make any life, young or old, truly beautiful or truly happy. Only he can cure the heart's restless fever and give quietness and calm. Only he can purify that sinful fountain within us, our corrupt nature, and make us holy. To have a peaceful and blessed ending to life, we must live with Christ.